Lord, we are thankful for your word. Thankful, Lord, for the kindness Lord, that you have given us with your word. And we ask, Lord, right now that you would be glorified by the, the preaching of your word, but Lord, also by our hearts as we receive it. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, what we we are not, would you make us? And Lord, allow me, even with the complications that I'm experiencing this morning, to simply be the mouthpiece, Lord, for your truth. Would you have your way? And uh, Lord, would you be glorified? We ask in your holy name. Amen. Is my mic on? Okay, very good. Well, if you remember, uh, last week we looked at <clears throat> uh, Paul before Felix, and we really dove in to, you might want to say, the, the technicalities of a court case and all that kind of stuff. And today, um, our, our approach is going to be a little bit more of a flyover uh, with a different purpose. And quite frankly, we have three accounts, one with Paul before Felix, one with Paul before Festus, and then Paul before Agrippa. And there is a sense of, of over, overlap and themes that are running in and through that. Yeah, but today, we want to focus our time more on um, Paul before Festus. And I'd like to begin this morning by really uh, honing in on statements that have defined men and women through the years. You have Cain, who says, am I my brother's keeper? You have someone like Neil Armstrong, who says, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Uh, just kind of a legacy statement for him. You have J.F. Kennedy, who famously said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. One that I really appreciate is Winston Churchill. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Or... In the spirit of this weekend, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. All statements that really embody and typify the person who's speaking. Uh, this last one is a little bit more humorous. Beneath the stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. We are remembered sometimes just by statements that typify us. What is one statement that will define you? See, Luke, the author of Acts, makes it a point to leave each of the rulers of Israel. All three of them that we find here in chapters 24 through 26 with a statement that summarizes their legacy. With Felix, it would be 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 25, he says, when I get an opportunity, that's what it says in the ESC, or when I find time, that's the NASB, when it's convenient, I will summon you. He's basically saying to Paul, I know you have a lot to say about Christ and the gospel, and if you remember, he was really afraid by what he was hearing, and he was putting Paul off. 
When we think about Festus, chapter 26, verse 24, which is outside of our passage, but it's a little bit later as Paul is speaking to Agrippa. Festus says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And then there's the famous, more famous statement made by Agrippa, which Dennis will preach on next week. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? See, these are statements that kind of typify or embody what these rulers were like and what they valued and what they encountered. So this morning, I want to ask a question, and it's a question that this text is asking. What will define you, what will define me when you are faced with a trial, a hardship, or an injustice? What will define you? What will people say about you when you face that trial, when you endure that hardship, when you suffer under that injustice? Will that hardship cause you to abandon trusting in God's promises? Will that trial cause you to look in other places for answers? Will that injustice produce anger and thoughts of revenge and hatred that leads you to despondency and despair? Will all of it move you to begin to deconstruct your faith? Or, on the other hand, will trials, hardships, and injustice produce in you a life of growing faith? And I want you to be reminded of what James says in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Here's what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness having its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And just remember here, that there will be trials, there will be hardships, there will be injustices in the world that should be drawing you closer to be like Jesus? Or will they move you to give up on Him? What we'll see here in chapter 25 is a comparison between two men. The Apostle Paul on the one hand, who's facing the trial of imprisonment for something he hasn't done. And then, Governor Festus, who is faced with the trial of what to do with Paul. And they're kind of different trials, aren't they? But they each are significant in their own right. Now remember what James says here. You will meet trials of various kinds. But you know, and he's speaking to Christians here, that God is doing something with those trials, isn't he? He's doing something to grow you toward maturity. So first of all, let's look at what I'm calling the clarity of a single-minded devotion to Christ. And this is Paul. And we see not only in our chapter, but in, the, in chapter 24, 25, and 26, Paul has a single-minded 
devotion to Christ. And it produces in him a clarity of thought. Now friends, life isn't fair. If you haven't figured that out yet, I don't know what country you've been living in. But life isn't fair, and God never promised that life would be fair. Unfortunately, so much of American Christianity teaches and preaches that God promises blessing and good things and comfort and health, but they're not reading God's truth because that's not what the Lord says. I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter there. It's up on the screen. In this, Peter says, talking there about our salvation, in this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, and God determines whether it's necessary or not, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Life involves trials and it involves grief. And you all know that to be true. Life also involves testing that will produce growth in us. So if you're looking at your situation and you're tempted to complain, why is this happening to me, God? What have I done to deserve this suffering? Has God forgotten about me? Does he not love me anymore? Then you've brought into your life, into your thinking, the lies of our culture and the false teaching that is so prevalent in our churches. You've forgotten that God never promises that life will be easy because we're living in a world that is tainted with sin. And only when we step into heaven will suffering and heartache end. But friends, Peter isn't saying that all of life will be this way. There will be times of great growth and much joy, and the kingdom of God will grow according to his purposes. And we see Paul, who, who, similar to Jesus, is driven by the clarity of a single-minded devotion. With Jesus, his single-minded devotion was Jerusalem and to bring glory to the Father by what he accomplished on the cross. With Paul, his single-minded devotion was to Christ and to fulfill the mission that Christ had given him. Now, that's all backdrop for what we want to look at next, four characteristics then of Paul's single-minded focus. And they're very simple. They come from the broader spectrum of our passage, 24, 25, a little bit from 26. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul is anchored to Christ's promises. Now, I think we looked at this already, but I just want to remind, uh, uh, remind us of what is driving our text, and that's Acts 23 and verse 11, where Luke records for us that the following night the Lord stood with Paul. Now, just, just re- remind yourselves right now, that you can say the same thing today. 
the Lord is standing with you. When Christ departs, he leaves the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, and he is the paraclete. That means para, alongside, clete. He's walking alongside with you. He is your counselor in that sense. He's there. He's present with you. And he says, take courage, for as you have testified to the faith about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And Paul knows He's not in Rome yet. He's in Caesarea. And the promise is, is a promise added to what God has already told him through Ananias back in Acts chapter 9. Again, to remind you of this, the Lord said to him, talking about Ananias, go for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, those three groups. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's not the kind of commissioning statement that we like to hear. The first part sounds great. The second part, not so much. But these are two passages that show us the promises that God had given Paul that drive him now and also anchor him to what he's been called to do. So Paul is God's chosen instrument. That hasn't changed. He's in jail right now, but he's still God's chosen instrument. And he's not his instrument to the Gentiles. He's not his instrument necessarily to the Jews, but he is his instrument right now to what? To the kings, the rulers. The circumstances and the location have changed, but Paul, being God's servant to the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, hasn't changed. And we know that Paul's gone through much suffering, so this is still being fulfilled. He knew that he had been called by God to serve, and that service would include the suffering. But no matter what happened, if you remember, God would stand by him. God knew his circumstances. God was for him. God was working his will through him. And we can say the same thing about us. And that's why Paul is able to stand before Felix and now Festus and speak with boldness and dignity and confidence and clarity because he's anchored to the promises of God. And friends, when we are anchored to God's promises, we are liberated to be his servants and testify to his goodness. Those promises aren't there simply for selfish purposes. They're there so that we can have confidence in God to do or to be in the context of fleshing out the ministry he's called us to. Look, we know that we are the recipients of eternal life through Jesus Christ. That should anchor us. We know that we are richer than we could ever imagine because of the riches of Christ. We know that God is at work even through our sinful failings. 
And we know that the kingdom marches on according to God's plan. And so we can be anchored to those promises and then look at life and see life in light of those promises, and it liberates us. It frees us. So how do the promises of God help us to persevere? Now hear this, they don't just make you feel good. God's promises are not, are not there just to make you somehow emotionally happy. That's not why God gives them to you, to make you warm and fuzzy. No, they're there to give you confidence, to, to give you assurance that there is, there is liberty to open your mouth or to, to be obedient with your actions and to fulfill what God is calling you to do. Those promises are there to, to move you, not just to say, oh, isn't it wonderful? No, there's an aspect that the confidence and the assurance is there, but it's, it's also for you to move to action and to open your mouth. The bottom line here is that Paul is anchored to Christ's promises, and the reflection for us is, and so should we be. Secondly, he's obedient to God's providence. The last verse in chapter 24 tells us that Paul stayed in jail under Felix's watch for over two years. It's like, just kind of like lay it out there for us. And then as we begin chapter 25, we're, we're talking, you know, we've, we have days and we have eight to ten days he's here. The point is, he's still there. It's still dragging on. And can you imagine what it would have been like for Paul? This is a long time to be incarcerated. I mean, no one looks forward to being in jail for two years. Now, granted, his jail situation may not be quite as bad as it could have been, but still it's a long time to have to stay in the same place. But we're told in chapter um, um, 24 and verse 23 that Paul was allowed to have some liberty, and that some, none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And you can see the providence of God even in that privileged opportunity that Felix gives him. Why? Well, we know that Paul wrote a lot of his letters from prison. Now, the reality is none of the Letters that we have in our, in our Bibles, in the canon of Scripture, were written in Caesarea, which is where he is right now. They were written in Rome. But Paul has a pattern. While he's in jail, he's just not going to sit there and do nothing. What does he do? He is strategizing. He has his Timothys and his Tituses and Tychicuses and all those other guys that he's been investing in, coming and going, sending letters, encouraging them, helping them with ministry. Now, we don't have a record specifically of that happening, but I think we're in, in good ground to say that's likely what Paul would be doing with his time. And in God's providence, he has him stuck for two years, so to speak, but he's really not stuck. He's there to do God's work from that particular context. So on the one hand, the Jews had been effective in pressuring Felix 
to do nothing and keep Paul in jail. But on the other hand, even though they had been successful, God's providence was at work. And Paul is obedient. Friends, what might seem to us to be a trial, a roadblock, or a change in plans is actually God's providence at work. We may not like it. It may be frustrating. But we need to trust that the Savior, sovereign ruler of this world, is exercising his providence through those trials and difficulties. And therefore, we are the ones that have to adjust to our new normal and to see what God wants us to be doing in the context of that new normal. And that's what Paul does. Third, he's committed to the truth and integrity. Now again, you have to think of the timeline, you have to think of his circumstances, putting all this together. Paul's struggle in jail for over two years didn't affect his theology. I wonder if you or I were put in jail and we have the opportunity of coming up, in a sense, for parole, and all we had to do was say something different about our theology, and we would be set free. <laughs> There's no evidence whatsoever that Paul changes his tune. The Jews come, they make their accusations. And of course, they're all without any evidence. But Paul says the same thing. Paul argued, we find there in verse 8, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And friends, we're living in a society and a culture that is looking to put Christianity and Christians in jail for their beliefs. And you say, well, wait a second. Are there Christians in jail for their beliefs right now? Well, maybe not physically, but certainly socially. You speak of your Christian faith in the social or public arena, and boy, how quickly our culture wants to squeeze you into its mold. How it wants to squelch those ideas and those statements by using things like shaming and bullying and scoffing and Mockery to, to beat you into submission. Now we know that. There's nothing new there. But it's nonstop, isn't it? I mean, you, you go online and it's just prodding you. You watch a TV show and there it is, picking away, challenging you trying to squeeze you to embrace what it wants you to embrace. But friends, those who are opposed to Christ do not forget. Here are the Jews two years later. What's the first thing that they want to do when Festus comes? Oh yeah, Paul. Let's deal with Paul. And they're saying there's a seditious man sitting in your jail right now and he needs to come to trial. We don't 
uh, why don't you bring him to Jerusalem and be tried? And of course, behind that, they want to do or follow the same plan they had before. Friends, the world's agenda is everywhere. Social media, TV, movies, even the commercials. Have you noticed that? They just all want to be so inclusive and force you to just to embrace as if everything is normal. And our culture is saying things like, you want to condemn me for my behavior and call it sin? How dare you? You don't believe in a woman's right to choose? How hateful. You stand against children doing all they can do to conform to the gender of their choice? How unloving. Now, these are all things that you say, well, isn't that political? No, this is stuff that goes against God. These are things that that are trying to, to squeeze us and push us to embrace when God says, no, this isn't loving. The golden rule that Jesus laid out for us is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The ESV says it this way, so whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets is saying, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Today, however, Jesus' words are being challenged as insufficient and unhelpful. Apparently, we need to improve on Jesus' words. And apparently, the words of Jesus and the law, of, uh, the law and the prophets just don't cut it. We need to have a new rule. And so, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there is this new rule called the platinum rule that says this, treat others the way they want to be treated. If you don't treat me the way I want to be treated, the way I demand to be treated, then you are unloving. Now, there's an element of truth to what's being said in that statement. And to be fair, I believe that the platinum rule comes more from the context of a business marketing mentality where we're trying to figure out what people want and therefore provide them with what they want and thinking in those terms. But this platinum rule is a Pandora's box, isn't it? Because if it is embraced, it will cause devastation for us. And the element of truth, however, in that statement flows out of the golden rule. Let me explain what I'm talking about. It says, you know, the the golden rule is basically saying, look, be considerate and kind. Think about the other person so that when I treat you the way I would want to be treated, if I were in your shoes, so I'm going to consider you. I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be loving. And if I have to be honest and I have to be truthful, I'm going to do it in such a way that if I were sitting in your seat, I would want you to communicate with me. It's an element of truth, thinking about the other person. But the platinum rule says all the authority resides in the person. And you have to adjust everything to what they want, right? The issue is no longer the truth. 
but that you bend the truth to fit what they want and how they want to be treated. Let me just give you a couple of examples. You know, if children will sit down with their parents and say something like, I want to be given freedom to do what I want. And the parent is going to practice the platinum rule, which says, let me just read it again here, treat others the way they want to be treated. Oh, therefore, I have to give in to what my children want. That's the platinum rule. If this is what they want, then who am I to stop them? All right, another one. Students will say to their teachers, I should be given a better grade than I got on that test. I studied for the longest time. This isn't right. And if I don't get an A on my test, my parents will be angry. You must treat me the way I want to be treated. And friends, this, this mentality is out there used selectively for people who do not want to face the truth. The platinum rule should actually be called the platinum demand. This is the kind of thinking the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans 1 when he says, they will exchange the truth of God for a lie. But you see, Paul is committed to truth and integrity. And friends, the point here is that the world will put pressure on Christians to conform to their ideology and standards. And of course, we saw the hypocrisy of the world just a couple of weeks ago at a football game between Buffalo and the Cincinnati Bengals. And there was a Buffalo player, DeMar Hamlin, who got hit, fell down, cardiac arrest. Ambulance comes on the field, they call off the game, but you see players all huddled together on their knee, and they weren't protesting. They were appealing. And people in the stands, both Bills fans and Bengals fans together, praying for this one player. The reality, the importance of life was at stake, and what did people do? They went to their knees. They cried out to God. Football didn't matter anymore. And the world looking on did not know what to do with it. They didn't like it, but they didn't know what to do with it. But it was raw, it was real, and it's what the people were naturally doing. Why? Because in crisis, we want to turn to God. The world wants to keep God out of the frame but God keeps putting himself right back in it, doesn't he? Next one, letter D. He's ready to die. Now, I just want you to think about this one. I want you to look at verses 9 through 11 here. Festus wishing to, to do the Jews a favor comes to Paul and says, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem? there and be tried on these charges before me? But Paul responds by saying, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. 
to the Jews, I have done nothing wrong, as you yourself know very well. See, Paul reaffirms his innocence here and stresses that the charges levied against him are Roman violations and should be tried in a Roman court. So Caesarea is the right place where it should go. But notice what he says next. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul is saying, look, I am willing to die. I'm not afraid to die. Festus, if I have done the crime, I'll do the time. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of dying. Now, Paul's not saying, I want to die. But he's saying, I'm ready to die if this is all part of God's sovereign plan. And you can imagine as Paul goes back to his room that very day, he jots down the words, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. This past week, many of you have been praying for Glenn and Helen Sterling's daughter, Kathy Gaither, who's been in the hospital with a ruptured appendix and the poison entered the abdomen cavity and has caused a lot of um, gases and things to, uh, to be there and some impurities and infections. And there have been some real touch-and-go times, as I'm sure you have read on Realm, as Glenn and Helen have posted. And at one point during her suffering, Kathy said this, I'm ready to die. I don't want to, but if it's God's time, then I'm ready to go to be with my Lord. And as we were talking on the phone, and they were sharing this with me, I thought to myself, if I were a parent, these would be some of the most sweetest and comforting words I could hear from my child. I'm ready to die if that's what God has in store for me. Why? Because it communicates a single-minded devotion to Christ. What more can you ask for in your children? Friends, is that your legacy? Is that the kind of statement that will define you as you serve the Lord in the face of trials? If it's God's time, I'm willing to die. I think of our friends in Ukraine who have put themselves out in harm's way to get refugees from one place to another, knowing that they're putting themselves in a situation where they might die. But for the sake of people and for the sake of kingdom and for the sake of the church being a gospel witness, they're going forward, they're doing what they need to do. What will define you? The clarity of a single-minded devotion to Christ. Next, I'd like us to consider the turmoil of a double-minded bondage to man. 
You see, as we turn our attention to Governor Festus, what we find is a man who knows the truth about Paul but isn't willing to allow the truth to rule. And as a result, he will suffer the turmoil of having a double-minded heart. Festus will help us to flesh out the proverb that says, the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Paul is trusting in the Lord. He's safe in his hands. Festus, ultimately, will demonstrate his fear of man. He refuses to act on the truth that Paul is innocent. And he'll have to live with the turmoil that that, that that produces. And as we work through this passage again, we'll see Festus in turmoil over the fear of man. And we'll see that the heart of it is self-preservation. So here's the question. How is Festus in bondage to the fear of man? Well, it's really going to come in three answers. First of all, he fears the Jews. When Festus shows up on the scene, we're hopeful for something different to take place with Paul. And by all accounts, Festus is not like Felix at all. If you remember, Felix was a violent, greedy, contemptuous ruler. Whereas Festus, by all accounts, appears to be wise, moderate, and honorable. That's how the historians represent him. And when he first arrives on the scene, we find Festus being pressured by the Jewish religious leadership trying to, to get Paul back to Rome, or at least on the journey, so that they can kill him like they wanted to two years ago. But in his wisdom, Festus says, no, you need to come down to Caesarea. That's where the trial is going to take place. And so there's every appearance here that Festus is going to make sure that Paul gets a fair trial. So far, so good. Festus seems to be an alert leader, seems to be a man of conviction, seems to, to know how to be in control or to be more noble and wise. And when the trial begins eight to ten days later, he allows the Jews to make their case against Paul. And Luke adds, they brought serious charges against him that they could not prove. Serious charges! that they could not prove. <laughs> and Paul simply says, and this is a paraphrase, none of what they're accusing me of is true. I have committed no offense against Caesar. But then we find these words that seem to be lingering through this whole story, don't we? Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. Friends, you can just imagine the scene, can't you? Festus is now sweating, wondering what he should do under the pressure from the Jews to find a man guilty of crimes that he knows that he's innocent of. But Festus is wanting to do the Jews a favor. 
This is his opportunity to build this relationship with the religious leaders of the, the, the province that he is ruling over. So from a political perspective, he wants things to go well and to be smooth, even at the cost of one innocent man. But Festus is faced with a dilemma, isn't he? Allow the truth to prevail and set Paul free, which is what he should do, or cave into the pressure to please the people who have no basis for their accusations. Will he stand for truth, or will he put himself and his political security first? And sadly, friends, what hope we had in wise, honorable, different Festus vanishes away. Felix may have been an overbearing, violent man who wouldn't let Paul go, but now we have a wise, thoughtful honorable leader who still won't let Paul go. The dilemma, allow truth to stand or cave into the pressure of man. And friends, isn't that the same question that we face but in smaller situations? As a parent, do you allow the children to put pressure on you to act and behave in, or do things that you know are not good or are sinful? Pressure, pressure, pressure. What should I do? Stand for the truth. Show them why. Guide them in it. As a husband or wife, are you putting pressure on your spouse to do things that violate God's word? At work, do you allow the pressure to conform to the world's beliefs and standards? Or do you carefully and respectfully stand for the truth? These are all things that, that we have to wrestle with, friends. Because ultimately, it's the fear of man that is trying to squeeze us and to conform us. But friends, the moment you abandon the safety of God's truth and give in to the fear of man, you will find yourself entangled and snared and in turmoil. And that is where Festus finds himself. But not only is Festus in turmoil because of the fear of the Jews, there's a new, more serious kind of fear of man that takes place because when Festus now is saying no to Paul and his release, and ultimately it results in Paul saying, well, I'm going to appeal to Caesar... There's a new fear. And that new fear is the emperor. What is he going to say? I mean, it's the, the, the rest of the chapter here is, is Festus trying to figure out how in the world do I let Paul go to Caesar? And what do I say when he gets there? How do I explain this? So he turns to King Agrippa, who is visiting. Now we have to understand that King Agrippa is rightfully titled king, but he really has no authority. He has authority over a few provinces in the north, 
But Festus is the rightful ruler here. And basically, this is just kind of like the, the elites gathering together. And so that's why it's kind of like a, it's a show for, for Agrippa to come in with, uh, with his sister here in this big kind of pomp and circumstance, because they're just like rulers of a real small area. But they come. And Paul consults with his council, and they, not Paul, say Festus does with his council, and, and, and he says, all right, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go, but he doesn't realize what he's doing in saying that. It might be like, ah, oh, relief, I don't have to worry about this problem, and then I'm sure the next day he kind of wakes up and he thinks to himself, wait a second, he's not my problem anymore, but I've got a bigger problem, and it's Caesar. And by the way, Caesar is Nero. Now, this is granted before Nero kind of went crazy on everyone, but still. This is a new can of worms that has opened up because of the fear of man and his unwillingness to allow the truth to prevail. It wasn't just about satisfying the Jews, but this has turned into a new problem that is before him, right? What's he going to say? about Paul. I'm sending this man to you, Caesar, because he's innocent of the charges against him, so that you can make the decision. What, what does he say to describe that at the end of this passage? In fact, if you go down, you can see it in verse 27, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. That word unreasonable translated in the New American, which I think says it better. It's absurd. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. You see the situation he's placed himself in here. He's mapped for himself, without realizing it, far more trouble than he could have imagined. a revealing statement, isn't it? I have to come up with something to accuse Paul of, or I will look completely incompetent before Caesar. Yes, it is absurd to send someone to stand trial when you know that there is no case against them. It is absurd that you, are, you have not already let him go. It's absurd that you've caused more trouble for yourself. You can hear the panic in his words to Agrippa as he rehashes all that took place. And Festus, friends, all Festus had to do after Paul gave his testimony was to respond to the case with justice and equity. He simply needed to wrap his gavel and say, case dismissed. But for the fear of of man. And when he allowed the fear of man to step in and to rule, he finds himself ensnared. He doesn't, well, his weak, he is weak when he needs to be strong. He, is, uh, he takes a seat when he needs to stand up. He gives in to the fear of man when he needs to honor the truth. 
Os Guinness gives a very helpful definition of the character trait in his book, the character trait here um, of what, <clears throat> of double-mindedness here by saying this, when you believe you are in one mind and accept something as true, unbelief is to be of one mind and to reject something as true. To doubt is to waver between the two. To believe and to disbelieve at the same time. And so to be in two minds. This is a terrible place for Festus to be. But he can only blame himself. James 1, we're told, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. There's a Chinese proverb that says, doubt is standing in two boats with one foot in each. Can often lead to a painful result. That's not in the proverb, but that's my commentary on that, okay? And this is where Festus finds himself. He finds himself more concerned about what other men think than what the truth is. And the sin behind this double-mindedness and the fear of man is the sin of self-preservation. See, in this case, the sin isn't just the fear of man but it is his sense of self-preservation that is giving in to the fear of man. So he's committed to this self-preservation. That's what's driving things here. A.W. Tozer once described self-hyphenated sins. It's a long list of things like self-worship and self-focus and self-centeredness and so on. At the core of all these is a focus on the self and at the end of these is an extreme commitment to self-preservation. Now, on one hand, the idea of self-preservation is good when it comes to preserving health and maintaining physical safety or guarding your time and things like that. I mean, you don't stand right on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Well, if you do, you shouldn't, right? It makes... No sense to keep your hands on a hot stove. Self-preservation will say, don't do that. It makes sense that we buckle up in the car. We can go on. There's all sorts of positive examples of self-preservation, but the sin of self-preservation is a different thing. It is looking out for number one. Self-preservation is the commitment at any cost, to keep and protect what one is, has, and has achieved. And it will drive us to abandon the truth. And in this case, Festus' case, to embrace the fear of man. See, it's this self-preservation that keeps Festus locked in his double-mindedness, entangled in the snare of the fear of man. If I stand firm and make a judgment on Paul's behalf and dismiss the case, I will lose my grip 
on my self-preservation. The Jewish leaders will turn on me. They will mock me as a failure. And my reputation, my standing with Rome, and my status are all on the line. You see the connection here. Double-mindedness and the fear of man are the fruit of the sin of self-preservation. So on the one hand here, we have Paul, a man of integrity, who was willing to die for the truth. And on the other hand, we have Festus, a double-minded man who is committed to self-preservation in spite of the truth. Now I want to bring this to a close. In all of this, I began with the question, what will define you as you face trials, hardships, and injustice? We might be tempted to say that in Paul's case, the statement that really defines his life is what we read in 2 Timothy 4.7, and it's a wonderful statement. We're told there he had fought the good fight, he had finished the race, he had kept the faith. I mean, that's, it's quite a statement. But there is a heart attitude that is driving all that that I think is worth us paying attention to. Let me draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10 and see if you can catch what it is. Paul says, this is after he's talked about the thorn in the flesh and that kind of stuff. He says, for the sake of Christ, single focus, Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you get the heart attitude that is driving Paul in his single-minded focus and devotion to Christ? It's that word content. He's content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That statement is a statement of contentness. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, whatever it might be, I am going to be content in the Lord. Friends, to be content is to be resting fully in the providence of God. Are you content today? Sometimes we we deal with all these things that are floating out that are fruits. But it's the root of contentedness in Christ and in the gospel and his providence that helps us anchor ourselves to the promises of God. Live in obedience with his providence. Stand for truth and integrity. And be willing to say, if this is my time to die, Lord, I know to be absent from the bodies, to be present with you. I don't want to die, but I'm willing to do it if this is your plan. Lord, we ask now, as we've looked at this passage, Lord, between 
Paul and Festus, that you would use it to, to draw our attention to what our heart is doing. Are we far more like Festus? Trying to preserve ourselves and in so doing, allowing things like the fear of man or just what other people think or the pressures of this world to to shape and to fashion us, to, to act and behave in certain ways? Or are we rooted in Christ in such a way that we are content with what it is that you have for us? So that when a dilemma comes, there's no issue for us. Truth is truth. Standing for Christ is easy because we are resting fully in your providence. Give us wisdom, Lord. Help us to allow this passage in your Holy Spirit to to shape us, to fashion us, cause us to ask questions, Lord, so that we can be your servants, ready and willing, Lord, for whatever you desire, wherever you have placed us, Lord. We ask in your holy name. Amen.